Well, good morning, Overlake. So good to be with you. Wow. What an exciting morning. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, it's been said I don't need an introduction. What I need is a conclusion. But thank you for those kind words. It really is a treat to be back. And uh, it's like a little glimpse of heaven when you walk back in after all of these months away and you see familiar faces. You can only imagine what that great day will be like. And so it's fun to see you. It's fun to be with you. We've reconnected with uh, some friends. We've been really busy the last, uh, the last few days since we flew into town uh, to visit with our daughter, Giselle, who we're glad to say is here with us this morning. She travels a lot, you may know. But uh, she's back in town for a few days, and then she's heading off uh, to school in, in just a couple days, and in her case, off to Scotland. Not bad, huh? Anyway, we're loving life in Tucson, I have to say. Uh, it's been a little coming up here and all the smoke and all that stuff up here, but uh, we have found that it is true. It is hot in Arizona, but it is a dry heat. And what a treat to be able to share with you this morning and actually have several weeks to think about this passage. And it's interesting how the Lord distills things for you over time, and I, I look forward to sharing with you what he's laid on my heart. And I'm glad to be able to jump into this series on the stories of Jesus, the parables that he told. They're so profound, and I think this even surprised me, and I've been a pastor many years, but having time to really reflect on this one story and to see the incredible wisdom packed in it and the simplicity. And my prayer for you this morning is that you won't miss it. The story we're going to look at today is very practical, and it deals with a couple of topics everyone is interested in, dollars and death. Well, maybe not quite in that order. You know, you think about death, but we try to put that off. But the reality is there is this incredible connection, believe it or not, between our money and our life and how we live our life. And you might know if you've been a Christian any length of time or you've read the Bible that there are more than 2,000 verses in the Bible which should tell us something. But you may not know that Jesus said more about finances than he did about heaven and hell combined. And when you think about it from that perspective, you realize that, that uh, the parable we're looking at today has a truth tucked away in it that none of us can afford to miss. We all need metrics in life. I, I learned this years ago. When I was a kid, I'd grown up in, in urban Chicago, and I was a young teenager, and uh, I'll never forget one Christmas, I got a brand new basketball for Christmas. And I was so excited to get that basketball in snowy winter Chicago. And uh, I, I remember, uh, you know, I always wanted to play in the NBA. That was one of my dreams. Take that by faith. But when I was a kid, this is a true story. I, I, I've lived long enough, that I'm not embarrassed to tell you this story. But when I was a kid, I, I used to pray regularly for three things. That God would make me taller, better looking, and smarter. He only saw fit to answer two of those prayer requests. But, <laughs> but anyway, I, I, here I was in Chicago with a new basketball. I looked out the window. The day after Christmas, it was snowing. There was snow on the ground, and actually it stopped snowing a little bit. So, so I, I grabbed a shovel, took my basketball, went down to the court in the grade school that I went to, and, and I shoveled out a free throw line. And I, I was getting ready, you know, to shoot, and I looked up, and you can appreciate this in Chicago, they have metal basketball nets, only in this case, the basket had been ripped off. So here I was with my new basketball, the day after Christmas, and there was no hoop to shoot at. So I dribbled a few times, 
I took a shot against the backboard, came back to me, did that a few times. And you know what I found pretty quickly? It isn't much fun to play basketball when there's a non-existent basketball hoop. So it didn't take me long to figure out, without a way to measure my skill and short my shortcomings as a shooter, it wasn't a lot of fun shooting at just a blank backboard. And if you think about it, life is just like that. So stay with me for a moment on this. If we have nothing to measure life by, if we have no goals, if we have no parameters by which we live, it isn't long before life loses meaning. And yet we all want a meaningful life. At least we set out that way. We want to live healthy lives. We want to land a good job. We want to be spiritually vital. We sang about it this morning. And we want to enjoy meaningful relationships. And of course, this is where the Bible is the most genius book ever written because the Bible at its core, and you can memorize this one or jot it down, the Bible is a relational handbook. It's exactly what it is. It's all about relationships broken and restored. And at any given moment, when it comes to God, every one of us is on one side of that equation or the other. We're either living in a vital relationship or a healthy relationship with God, or we're at some point where we need a restoration. And I guarantee you, all of us are in one of those corners this morning. If the world's mantra is, show me the money, Christianity's mantra is, show me the relationship. This is why, if you have your notes, you can pull those out. Jesus said this, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Now watch, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, that's a pretty dramatic claim, and and at times you read something like that, and it's what we call Hebrew parallelism, where Jesus takes a phrase, he uses it, and then he reinforces it by speaking the same thing again in a little different language to drive the point home. But the striking thing about it is, I remember the very first church I served in was in San Diego, California, and uh, there was a little old lady in my church. She came faithfully every week, and and she always had all these little witticisms, and she, she would say to me on occasion, Gary, there are two sides to every issue, just like there are two sides to a sheet of flypaper, but it makes a big difference to the fly which side it's on. (laughs) And that's why today's parable, it deals with money's potential effect on spiritual relationships. Let me say this again. Money's potential effect on spiritual relationships. And maybe you never equated money with spirituality and relationships, but there it is right at its core. Now, we've all heard the saying, where there's a will, there's a relative, and, uh, and, and that's where our story begins, actually. So one day, Jesus was teaching, as obviously he did on so many occasions, and, and uh, we read in Luke chapter 12, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And so you get the picture of Jesus teaching. Here this guy pipes up, very inappropriate. Uh, Jesus obviously didn't think it was a rabbi's job description included, you know, solving this particular problem, especially when someone was asking with a not-so-hidden agenda. This guy was disappointed. Many of you know, Pastor Pat spoke on it a few weeks ago when he talked about the parable of the lost son, how the inheritance was divided and the elder brother got two-thirds or 
two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger brother got less. So this brother is bummed that the elder brother would get twice as much as he does. So Jesus quickly pushes that to the side, and he gets to the core of the issue, and he does uh, what every master teacher loves. He, he takes this as a teachable moment, and, and he says, the real issue at hand here is greed. And he says in verse 15 of Luke 12, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Have you found that to be true? I I'm finding it more and more. Tons of books being written about simplicity in life. When we moved to Arizona, uh, we found this to be true. All the stuff we accumulated over a lifetime, we soon realized we didn't own things, but things owned us. And if you haven't found that out, you will one day. Reminds me of a cartoon I saw. A guy is standing by a garage door with his son. He lifts the garage door, and his son is standing there, and he points to all this stuff that's in the garage. And he says, just think, one of these days, all this will be yours. <laughs> Sobering thought, isn't it? But see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus debunked the kind of popular myth that's been around for a couple decades that the one with the most toys wins. And this story points out that Greed comes in all kinds of forms. The Apostle John put it like this. For everything in the world, think about this, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. So we have all these decisions to make and all this stuff coming our way and all of these temptations that we face. See, we can turn almost anything into a God and that's the issue in this story, the story of the rich man, the myth of more. The myth of more, that somehow a belief that more will make us happy, and yet when we crave more, more is never enough. It never satisfies. It's why even the Kardashians can't keep up with the Kardashians. <laughs> you always want a little bit more. One of the things I love to do when I'm journaling, and I usually don't, you know, I don't like like to write a diary or anything like that, but I'll, I'll find a quote or I'll see a phrase or something that intrigues me, and I'll write it down and reflect on it, and there's one I came across several months ago, and uh, listen to this, this little phrase. It's called hedonic adaptation. You know the word hedonism, a pleasure-seeking. Hedonic adaptation. Now, here's the definition. You might want to write this down and reflect on it, too. What we always dreamed of becomes nothing more than normal once we achieve it. Hedonic adaptation. What we've always dreamed of becomes nothing more than normal once we've achieved it. This is why more can never satisfy. Because everything becomes normal for us. And so, some key ideas. Number one, there's more to life than more. Recently, George and I watched a television show. We, uh, you know, like a lot of you, watch these different shows on homes and home development. Well, this particular one was on a family, maybe you've heard the story, it's a few years old now, but uh, as we watched it, this, this couple, they, they wanted to build, their goal in life was to build the largest personal residence in America. So this home was 12 years in the making, still was incomplete, and, and it had, uh, let me get this facts right, it had 90,000 square feet, it carried a million dollar price tag, it includes 13 bedrooms, 30 bathrooms, I'm not sure of the uh, equation here, <laughs> a bowling alley, an indoor swimming pool, and a 20-car garage. This was their goal in life. Then tragedy struck. Their 18-year-old daughter died of a drug overdose, totally unexpected. They didn't even know she was into drugs. 
their priorities immediately shifted. And since her death, all of their energy has gone to helping families with teenagers who struggle with drug abuse. And they don't care much about the mansion anymore. See, most of us eventually succumb to the realization that loving relationships are what matters most. Some discover it when a loved one unexpectedly is taken. Others, when their mortality becomes a reality. But an unfortunate few never figure it out. Some people, I think the rich man in our story, just kind of breezed through life, never really hit enough speed bumps to where he thought about the reality of eternity. I love Paul's advice in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people to ruin and destruction. Now watch this one. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice, it doesn't say that money is evil, it's the love of money. Such an important distinction. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This, this bigger barn mentality seems right on the surface, but in the edge, end, it really is a bridge to nowhere. And to show the short-sightedness of a selfish lifestyle, Jesus then goes on to tell the story. Now, here's the crux of the story in just a few verses. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down the barns and build a bigger one, and that's where I'll store my surplus grain. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Famous last words, are they not? So I call this the bigger barn syndrome. You know, a syndrome really is when there's a series of conditions that, that they come together and they, they lead to a specific result. This guy wanted bigger barns. He wanted more money. And you go on and on with all the things that he wanted, all of these wants, wants, wants. And when you put those together, that created this syndrome. And this is something maybe we see a lot of in our day, even in the area we live in. The rich man, though, appears to be doing all the right things, is he not? I mean, he's beginning with the end in mind. So maybe he read Stephen Covey's book. He, he at least thinks he knows what the end game is, and he's living the first century version of the American dream, is he not? He's figured out how to maximize crop production and get a great return on his investment, and then he's faced with an uncommon problem in that day, a bumper crop. Everything's coming up, roses for him. He comes up with a bold solution. Now, I reflected on this. I thought, you know, we take bigger barns for granted, but they were a novelty in the first century. That was a time when most people lived a hand-to-mouth existence. They knew nothing of McMansions or McBarns. Now, this guy's hit it big, and he's contemplating what an early retirement will be like, and in his mind, he's sailing through life without a worry in the world. Know anybody like that? Well, this man's problem wasn't his wealth. It was his industrial strength narcissism. If you you look at what he says in in just a handful of verses, 11 times he leans on his own wisdom. I said to myself, well, what should I do? Well, I I told myself that. And he goes on and on. All of these eyes, all of of this self-focus. See, he had all these plans, but God had other plans for him. And then we read one of the most sobering verses in all of the Bible, in my opinion. But God said to him, you fool. 
This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Now, you may know the word fool in the Bible means someone who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe even in the existence of God. Something I think we're seeing of more and more in our day. I remember hearing a wise person say, you know, once in a while you're in a room and you try to make yourself the smallest person in the room and learn from the wisdom of others. And I heard someone say this, and I, and I, I, I never forgot it. This is decades ago. People who are stingy with their money are stingy in their relationships. And in this man's case, stinginess results from a lack of humility and gratitude. That's usually the case, by the way. But now watch this. The, the key to unlocking parables is knowing that almost in every case, the punchline comes at the end. Jesus then talks about riches that matter. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Okay, that's the key right there. Highlight it in your Bible. This is how it's going to be. Whoever stores up for themselves but is not rich toward God. See, we either accumulate only for ourselves or also with a view toward expanding God's kingdom. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with looking forward to living a life in, in well, in my case for sure, where you move into that retirement phase. It's a different life, but you still, you still need money to live. But that doesn't have to squelch the generosity that you have. So it's a matter of perspective. Am I accumulating only for myself or am I accumulating at a certain phase of my life knowing that generosity is meant to flow from me, that God blesses that generosity? You know, it was Martin Luther, the great scholar and, and, and really the, the impetus behind the Protestant Reformation who said, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. So, so let's look at what the Bible says about living generously. Proverbs 3, 10 and 11. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. Another verse, Proverbs 11. One person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. Interesting, isn't it? The tighter we grasp it, like sand, it slips through our fingers. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. You see, God honors generosity. He honors it. We've lived it. George and I, uh, and I believe Giselle, we've come to understand what it means to live a generous life. Sometime back when I was speaking, I, I told the story of R.G. Letourneau. You know, he was this this. Uh, a Christian businessman who made a huge amount of money and, and uh, he, he kept not uh, just a small percentage or gave a small percentage to God, 10%. In his case, he gave 90% of his vast earnings. Now, now, he made a lot of money, but he gave 90% back to God and he made this famous memorable statement, I shovel money out and God shovels it back, but God has a bigger shovel. Well, the day after I, I gave that message, Pastor Mike and I were talking over lunch, and, and Mike reminded me of something I totally missed, because I'm thinking shovel, you know, the little shovel like I would use. And, and this is a guy that, that moved massive amounts of earth for his business. And Mike pointed out, yeah, he knew a thing about bigger shovels. I couldn't agree more. You see, for God, the issue has never been about the amount of one's wealth. But now watch this. It's always been this question, and this is a question every one of us has to resolve. Am I a steward of all that God's entrusted to me, or am I the owner? You may think that's a small question. I think it's one of the biggest questions you'll ever have to answer in your life. 
Because as long as you think you're an owner of all that God has blessed you with, and every one of us in this room has been richly blessed, you will double-think every time you come to an act of generosity what it's going to cost you without realizing that everything you have is from God and that we are stewards who will one day give an account. You see, it's all about right relationships. This is where I want to focus for the last few moments. You know, I've had a long-term interest in the connection between the business community and Christianity. You know, I've seen the struggles that exist there for the church really to break into understanding how business people think and what it's like to be a Christ follower in the business world. And many of you are business owners. And most of you, if not all of you, work in some, in some form. So you understand what it means to be in the marketplace. So I've read tons of biographies on this, Christian biographies. And, and I've, I've met some amazing people over the years. One of the most impressive was Dr. Bill Bright, who... Many of you know, perhaps he's founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. But he tells uh, this story. This story is recounted about him, and, and I've heard it often over the years, but I want to share it with you. He started out in business. That was his plan, to be a businessman. He, he then started seminary. He was wanting to study the Bible more, and he got really involved as a young man, head over heels, like a lot of us, doing too many things early in his marriage. So his marriage to his wife, Bonnet, began to suffer and as they look back, he recalled his selfishness. His priorities always mattered more than hers. Her interest took a back seat. Following a husband and wife conflict one day after church, something, by the way, which never happens today, uh, they went home and they got into a deep conversation, and they were talking not only about their relationship to each other, but their relationship to God. Because you see, it's always a triangle, isn't it, for the Christ follower? There's always, ideally, Jesus and then the husband and wife. And it is interesting, the closer we move to Jesus, the closer we move to each other. Have you noticed that? So Bill Bright starts out in business, and, and he's thinking of his selfishness. And they have this deep conversation, and they finally take out a sheet of paper, and they write down all the things, you might want to think about this, all the things that matter to them. They wanted a bigger house, they wanted certain cars to drive, they wanted to live in a certain, in this case, affluent community in, in Los Angeles. And, and as they looked at how materialistic they were, they recalled the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's another great question to ask. Then they did something extraordinary. Now, I've seen this happen many times since, but this was one of the first cases I ever came across. They drafted a covenant, and they signed it. They, by the way, they eventually signed their business over to the Lord and then, of course, ended up in ministry. But they turned their life and their marriage over to God. And I, I put it on the screen. I put it in your notes for you because I, I think this could be a template for you to think about. So let me read it to you, and you can follow along. From this day, Lord, we surrender and relinquish all of our past, present, and future rights and material possessions to you. As an act of the will, by faith, we choose to become your bondservants and to do what you want us to do, to go wherever you want us to go, and to say whatever you want us to say, no matter what it costs for the rest of our lives. With your help, we'll never again seek the praise or applause of men or the material wealth of the world. And this is one example, but this is a life. This is way back in the early 50s. And how God transformed a couple and how God used them mightily. And I've read other stories, a little different kinds of commitments, but people that make this passionate commitment, they drive a stake in the ground, they write it down. It doesn't need to be lengthy, but there's something powerful about proactively aligning our lives under God's leadership when it comes to relationships and resources. 
You know, Peter Drucker, the great business guru, said this, you can't manage what you can't measure. And it's not that we're trying to, to manage our sin. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying by stating things in crystal clear terms, we're able to look at that document, and it has power. And by the way, all of you have these documents. They're called a date book and a checkbook. And if you want to see where a person's priority lies, all you need to do is open their date book and their checkbook. It's, a, it's an important uh, thing to do on occasion, just to take a hard look at that. Remember what I said at the outset, that we all need metrics in life? You see, there's a reason for that. This one's worth writing down. I've used it so many times in my life. Our goals have a way of pulling us into the future. Think about that. Our goals have a way of pulling us into the future. I suspect the rich man in our story had a lifelong goal of amassing wealth, and he did. Now, let me tell you a story about someone who, a spiritual person who reflected more about money and about the impact of money on relationships with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. He looked in an unusual way at the power of wealth to enrich relationships. His name, by the way, is Lee. And Lee tells a story about he was a young kid growing up, and one summer he went to spend the summer with his grandmother, and he was living up north with her in this little community. And, and I, I don't know, just reading the story reminded me of the idyllic setting that I sometimes found myself in when we left Chicago and went to a more rural area. And he was in one of those kind of summer camp environments, but not a summer camp, just, just in a small town. And, and uh, he was there, and he, there was a young cousin there named... Uh, Steve, and Steve was a couple years younger, and they lived in the same town as his family, as, his grand, as Lee's grandmother, so they spent a lot of time playing together, and so one day they decided it would be fun to go out and collect pop bottle caps. Some of you will remember this. We used to collect playing cards and pop bottle caps. Nobody maybe does that quite the same way anymore. Uh, now they make a lot of money on those cards we gave away, but Mickey Mantle, sorry I gave that away. But all these bottle caps, they collected them, and, and like kids with great imaginations, which is so fun, they, they looked at these pop bottle caps as money. They treated them like money. And so the point was, whoever had the most pop bottle caps was the richest. So one day they were up at the softball field, you know, after the Little League game was over, and there was a concession stand, and all these pop bottle caps, they just collected them like crazy. But because Lee was bigger and stronger than Steve, he collected way more bottle caps. And he put them in his brown bag, and he had a lot more than Steve had. Then he writes, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, 40 years later, okay? He says, I don't recall what happened to those bottle caps, but I know for certain they're gone. And that if you could find them, they're worthless. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> I could have given some of my bottle caps to Steve just to be nice, but Steve didn't get any of my bottle caps. But if I had shared them with him, I'm convinced 40 years later, my relationship with Steve would be different, would be enriched. I would be something, it would be something different because I had spent my bottle caps on the friendship. As it was, I wasted it. Now the bottle caps are worthless dust and rust somewhere. Dare I say to all of us this morning, by way of a reminder, at the end of the day, all of our money is like those bottle caps. And like Monopoly money, the day is coming when all the money in the world will be worthless to us. You know, next month, Overlake celebrates 50 years of incredible ministry. Yeah, give a shout-out. It's awesome. I'm so proud of this church and Pastor Mike's leadership and the great team we have, all the volunteers, all of you. 50 years. 
We stand on the shoulders of people that were faithful. You know, all this, all, all that we've enjoyed, the seats we sit on, this incredible building, because of the generosity that some people understood the difference between owning and stewarding. So what the next 50 years is going to look like for Overlake depends on our faithfulness to the kingdom. So let me just give you, just real straightforward, some takeaways. Some of the so what's. Here they are. Number one, God blesses us to bless others. You'd think I'd seen this many years ago, but I think Lynn, Lynn Ellis, where are you, Lynn? I remember you talking about this one time, going, duh. You know, it's true. If you look at all the blessings God pours on people in the Bible, he gives it to them that they would dispense freely. Always. That we have the joy of letting it flow through us to others. God lets us be a part of that. The only money we have is God's money. We're his stewards. We should be generous because we really won't take it with us. We never were meant to. Secondly, and so importantly, put God in his kingdom first. We only have one life. It's a gift from God. And so I would say don't X him out of the equation like the rich man. The rich man never, the fool, never brought God into the equation of his life. Thirdly, I would say to you, consider creating a contract between yourself and God, or if you're in a significant relationship or you're married, have that conversation. What is it? What is it we're willing to acknowledge before the Lord? It can be as simple as Bill and Bonnet's part. I've seen some that are several pages, and I've seen powerful families that made these commitments. But one of my favorite is a, a guy, one of my favorite writers, a guy named Steve Farrar, he wrote his statement on just a napkin one day in a restaurant. It's just three words. Don't screw up. I mean, don't make this complicated. But make it specific. What is my relationship to God? Have I acknowledged? Have I put it to paper that God is the owner of everything? Believe me, that will transform your life. So let me just give a shout out to each kind of demographic here. If you're in your 20s to 30s, you're just getting started financially. Uh, you might not have much money, and you can't imagine ever having much. I know I didn't when I was starting out. And I always prayed the Lord would never bless me with more material wealth than uh, I could manage. And he was certainly faithful to that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you live below your means, and you give freely to God's work, and invest in your future, that's important, the results will amaze you. Start young. Start small. But be faithful. If you're in your 40s to 50s, more than likely you have a mortgage, you're trying to put kids through college, it's a tough time. It's a, it's a stressful time. It's a stretching time. But if you've been faithful starting out, you know that God has been generous and he has blessed you. Now, some of you are sitting there, and I do not want to induce any guilt in you. Here's the beauty of Christianity. There's always a place to start over. You can start over today. If you're in your 40s and 50s, you've not been doing this, and the Lord is just speaking to you this morning, you can make a mid-course correction. Just start where the Lord has you. If you're in your 60s, 70s, or beyond, it's time to right-size, not just the material possessions that you're going to have to deal with, but your financial resources as well. And if you've been faithful in giving and saving, it's a glorious time. It's so great. We love to be able to write checks as a family and to just bless ministries and people and things we believe in that are serving Jesus. It's a glorious time to bless others. But if not, it's still not too late. In fact, let's face it, most legacy givers are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Have you thought about the Lord and all that he's blessed you with? I just want to close with this, and I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment. 
Obviously, the key takeaway from this whole passage is it begins with a relationship with Jesus. And I hope you saw in this parable, it is very simple and straightforward. It's almost so in your face, it's hard to believe what Jesus says. You can't serve God in money. But God has to be first brought into the equation. If you don't know the Lord, then what I'm talking about is like white noise. But Jesus said, if you trust in me, if you believe in me, if you put your faith in me, I'll transform your life. You can have that transformation. And the thing is, it happens in an instant. I experienced it. Countless hundreds in this room have experienced what it means to put your trust in Jesus. So hear that first and foremost, putting your life in the Lord's hands. Would you bow with me as I pray? Father God, I thank you for a wonderful opportunity to share with people I love dearly, to have the honor to stand in the pulpit and just talk about your love and grace and your generosity to us. And I would just pray right now, Lord, for anyone in this room who might not yet know you, that this could be a day of transformation, just putting faith in Jesus, taking a step that acknowledges the need for a Savior in admission of failure and shortcoming and the need for your grace, the need for your gift, the need for a chance to start over in life. And Father God, we'll give you thanks for that. Thank you for blessing this great church. I look forward to what you have for this wonderful body of believers in the next 50 years. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you.